Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is the amazing Marshall Shepard. Marshall is an extremely prominent and accomplished scientist, but that's just the beginning of it. The number of things he does successfully in any given day or week or year is simply astonishing. As his day job, Marshall's Georgia Athletic Association Distinguished Professor of Geography and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Georgia, where he's also the Associate Head of the Geography Department and Director of UGA's Atmospheric Sciences Program. So that's a pretty solid full-time gig. And in that capacity, Marshall's a leading researcher on tropical precipitation, extreme weather, climate vulnerability, and other topics. And he's particularly well-known for his groundbreaking work on urban weather and climate, where Marshall has shown that large urban areas can have a more substantial impact on the atmosphere that had been previously thought. That is, cities can make their own weather to some extent. And for all this work, Marshall has won more awards of various kinds from many different professional societies than I can even get started listing here. Marshall also does a lot of service to the scientific community at the highest levels. In 2013, he served as president of the American Meteorological Society, and he regularly testifies before Congress and provides expertise to federal agencies. Then, Marshall's a public figure in a way that is highly unusual for an academic scientist. He currently hosts a podcast, Weather Geeks, which I was on a few months ago, and which grew out of the award-winning Sunday talk show he did on television for some years on the Weather Channel. Marshall also writes a regular column for Forbes on climate and weather topics and regularly appears on CNN and many other national media outlets. In short, Marshall is firing on all possible cylinders. He's a role model for all of us of what an active, engaged scientist looks like. In the conversation, we talked about where he started and how he got from there to where he is today. He started in Georgia in particular, and he's also ended up there, but he's been some other places in between In particular, he had a very successful career at NASA, which he left to take his current position some years ago. It's clear that Marshall Shepard's incredible talent, drive, and focus were there from the start and have never flagged. I don't know what lessons there are for the rest of us who don't have our acts together to the extent he does, but it's an inspiring story nonetheless. Later in the conversation, we got into the timely subject of the underrepresentation of African Americans in atmospheric science in general, and in the current historical moment in particular. Marshall has a lot of thoughts about this based on his own experiences as, as he describes it, the only black person for miles in some professional situations he's been in, as well as his many years of experience as an educator. It turns out, although I didn't know it till we had the conversation, that Marshall wrote a book on all this in the summer of 2020 as the new prominence of the Black Lives Matter movement was causing his white colleagues to seek his views more than they had before. The book is called The Race Awakening of 2020, A Six-Step Guide to Moving Forward. And just as an aside here, notice that Marshall Shepard can apparently just decide to write a book one day and bang it out in a couple of weeks. So let that be a lesson to all of us uh, who struggle to get our writing done. We talk about that and about what practical steps our fields and institutions could take to make progress. Altogether, it was an honor and a pleasure. And so here is my conversation with Marshall Shepard. 
the right place to start is usually at the beginning. <laughs> so where are you from, Marshall? So at the beginning, wow. So that, <laughs> that probably starts at R2 Jones Memorial Hospital in Canton, Georgia, which I, I'm actually a, I'm a native Georgian. I'm here at the University of Georgia. Uh, after some stints in other states, but I found my way back to my home state. Uh, Canton, Georgia is a little suburban town about 35, 40 miles north of Atlanta. Uh, when I grew up there, it was a pretty rural place. It was just kind of a small little rural town. Now it's pretty much just part of sprawling Atlanta, so it's a suburb. I'm, I'm actually old enough that it, in this part of Georgia, I went through K through eight. We didn't have middle school or junior high, so Went to a little school called uh, Tippins Elementary. It was North Canton before that. And then on the Cherokee High School, which is uh, the high school that I graduated from back in the late 80s. I, I, for whatever reason, I and this is I don't know if it's good or bad, but I was first African-American valedictorian of my class there in 1987. So. How could that be bad? Well, it could be bad. And we could talk about this because, you know, I've unfortunately had some first in my life, whether it be first African-American valedictorian or the first African-American to get a Ph.D. Yeah. From Florida State Meteorology or so forth. I mean, those aren't bad things in themselves, but right, that's I'm all not I, an know. old guy. And yeah, some of these oh, things are first. Fair, fair. Right. Late. No, I, I, I see. Of course. I mean, it's uh, it, it could be bad that you had to be the first. Yeah, that's that was but, kind of the point I'm getting at, that, that someone at my age was the first for some of yeah. these things that I would have thought would have happened. Well before. Right. But we don't want to denigrate your achievements. At, no, you know. I'm <laughs> proud of the achievement. I certainly honor it and uh, and so forth. But some of your listeners may remember when Oprah Winfrey went and did a show in Georgia and Forsyth County. It was a county, uh, to the neighboring county to the county I grew up in. It was a county where there, there weren't any African-Americans in the county. They, there was a really bad racial issues going on. Oh and so, you know, I, I guess my point in bringing all of that up is Cherokee County actually had some similar sort of demographic and social sort of t similarities to that. So that's kind of a backdrop of the county I grew up in. So, and where did you get interested in science at a young age? Or? I did. Yeah, I was, um, you know, I was, I always thought I was going to be an entomologist. Uh, and so I used to no catch, kidding. Cut, yeah, that was totally what I wanted to do. <laughs> and so I would catch things in the yard, bees, uh, insects of all kind. And I got stung by a bee, a honeybee and almost died. I was, I found out I was <sighs> highly allergic to bee stings. And so it's interesting. I remember this because my sixth grade science project was coming around and I was going to do something on bees and I changed because I didn't want to get stung and die. So that's, that's how I reason. discovered weather. I mean, I ended up doing a science project called Can a Sixth Grader Predict the Weather? Made weather instruments from things around the house. We didn't have you know, too much money. My, my mom was a teacher. I grew up in a single parent home with my mother. And so that science project, I won the science project, went on the district and did pretty well. And so... That's when I ironically got bitten by the weather bug. <laughs> so your what's, what subjects did your mom teach? She was a fourth grade teacher. So, you know, things were back then. Right. Fourth grade just kind of taught everything. And so I, I was, went to school at the school that she taught and I had her for fourth grade. And that was no easy walk in the park, I should say, because <laughs> anyone that has had their own mother or father as a teacher, they tend to go harder on you so that they don't seem to be showing favoritism. So. Uh, that was an interesting experience. But now she's a longtime educator. She also went on to be a principal in the same county. And before she retired, so she retired as a teacher and a principal in Cherokee County. My my dad also, who I didn't grow up with my dad, but I do have a relationship with him. He, he's in Melbourne, Florida. Uh -huh. And uh, he was also a teacher and a, an assistant principal as well. So I, I grew up in a family of educators. 
So as a kid, you're into entomology, but then you realize that's too dangerous for you because you don't <laughs> want to get killed by the bees. Yes. And then, so that's when you get interested in weather and it basically, that was it. I mean, you kind of like. That was it, Adam. I mean, I, t I mean, it literally was from that point on. I, I mean, after that project, I just became enamored with weather. I mean, there was a, a Jack Williams around that time, I believe, or a little bit later had published a book called the USA Today Weather Book. And actually, AMS has published or republished it and branded it under AMS, but it's still out there. I, I, I read that book and a few other books just voraciously. I mean, I was this weird kid also that read the World Book Encyclopedia, like front to back, A to Z, because <laughs> my mom sold them just as an extra source of income. So we got a free set. So I was just always reading about weather and climate and volcanoes and just earth science related things. But I knew I didn't want to be a weather forecaster or be on TV. I was just always more intrigued by the hows and whys. And so even in sixth, seventh, eighth grade-ish, I started looking around for the top meteorology programs. Um, at the time, there was not really an undergraduate program at the University of Georgia or Georgia Tech, which we both have them now. Right. And so Florida State kind of emerged because it was about four and a half hours from Atlanta. It's a, had a good meteorology program. And so it was a good decision, but it was one of sort of circumstance because perhaps now if the same situation, I might be at Georgia, Georgia Tech. So, Well, what I mean, what amazes me about this story almost more than anything, maybe it shouldn't amaze me because I, I guess I know you as an adult, but but is like the degree of clarity and focus about your professional <laughs> goals at a young age most yeah. of us are not don't have our act together like that well we're going so through that really. with my daughter right now <laughs> she, my daughter's 16 and pretty typical 16 year old junior in high school um very smart all a student ap classes all that kind of stuff volleyball player but i i remind her because my and my wife does as well she said your dad's the anomaly <laughs> and I'll, I'll even go a step further when i give gave my valedictory address uh, in high school, uh, I said that I wanted to work for NASA one day. No now, kidding. I, I That was in my valedictory speech, uh, having no clue how I would do it or whether it would happen. But it was a goal that I set my, for myself. And ultimately, after after grad school, I did end up spending, as you know, 12 years of my career at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center before going to academia to the University of Georgia. OK, well, yeah, that's a lot. We, we got, I want to go through some of that a little slower. All right. So you go to Florida State. I think you're about my generation. It's kind of the 90s. I think I'm a little older there. than you. I graduated from Florida State with my bachelor's in 91. Well, we're pretty close. I graduated yeah. in 89. So, yeah. 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 Not too much. So, and then you just stayed on? You know, it's interesting. I did my undergrad degree there. I, I did a lot of other things. I'm that person that always did a lot of things. I've always, and people even to this day ask me about it because they see me doing a lot of things. I've always been kind of that multitasker. Pretty typical in terms of science, but I was also... I think, you know, involved in senior class government at Florida State. I was president of my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. Yeah. Um, I just did a lot of other things while I was there. So and then I actually even did an internship where I did a research project with the National Weather Service in Tampa Bay. We, we were in Tallahassee, but there was a research project to analyze uh, sort of radar data to look for sort of signals in uh, something called vertically integrated liquid and echo tops in the emerging NEXRAD radar data sets that were coming about at the time. Yep. So got a little taste of research as an undergraduate. And so yeah. stayed on. I, I was a little bit of, I guess, AMS history. I received one of the first group of AMS industry fellowships 
uh, oh, AMS, yeah. AMS has fellowship sponsored, co-sponsored by industry and now nowadays federal agencies too. So I had a, I was in the first cohort of the, that in 93. And so I stayed on for my master's under support from the AMS uh, and partly supported by TRW too. It was the AMS TRW fellowship. So I did my master's there, did a thesis, master's thesis uh, using some genetic algorithms. And we, we were one of the first groups to have the WSR88D, the next rad radar data. My prof uh, professor advisor was a guy named uh, Peter Ray, who's mm. a very well-known uh, radar meteorologist. And so he had a contract with Unisys to develop some of the first generation algorithms for the next rad radar system. And so I worked on one of those algorithms for my master's. So then I got tired of school, as you do at that age, and you want to go out and live and make some money and meet somebody and just do regular things. So I was like, I'm going to go get a job. And so got a job with a what they call a Beltway Bandit, one of these contractors to NASA uh, and so forth. But a little I know, Peter Ray, my advisor, had called up a guy named Franco Inaudi, who was the head of Earth oh, Sciences. Yeah at NASA Goddard and said, this guy is really good. He wants to work for NASA one day. And Franco was like, look, I'd love to hire him, hire him, but we're in a hiring freeze, but we'll hire him for a contractor. And if there's an opening, we'll take a look. And so that's how I ultimately ended up getting a civil servant position. Eventually there was an opening that I applied for. No one took advantage of this, by the way, Adam. It was amazing. NASA had a program where you could apply to go back to do your doctorate at anywhere oh. you want to. You could go away for two years, do your coursework, do your prelims get your dissertation research topic and then come back and try to finish it. And that's kind of how I ended up with the PhD. Oh, I didn't know that. So you were at NASA through your graduate studies, essentially? I was at, so I, like I said, after my master's, I got a job with a private company called SSAI. Worked yeah, yeah. with them for about a, maybe six to eight months, then got hired on by NASA. Worked there just as a junior support scientist, worked supporting people like Dr. Jerry Hinesfield, a little bit with Joanne Simpson and others, just oh, working yeah. on trim-related things. And so... Um, uh, we should start, We should pause there for the uninitiated. Yeah, tropical Rainfall, tropical measuring, rainfall mission. measuring Mission. It was a satellite, satellite yeah. that, that NASA was launching back in the early 90s to measure tropical rainfall so that you can understand... Uh, the latent heating profiles that power the global circulation, all these types of interesting things that you started with tropical rain. I ended up becoming later in life, and we'll probably get there, the deputy project scientist for GPM, the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, which was the follow-on satellite mission to TRIM. But yeah, so with, you know, a couple of years after I was in that sort of junior support scientist role, uh, I, I applied for that uh, NASA fellowship that allowed you to go back to wherever you wanted to. In my case, I went back to Florida State. Uh, in the mid 90s to do my PhD. Now, the trick with that is for every year that NASA paid for, for of your doctorate, you owed them three years of service. So, okay. so two years means six years of that I couldn't leave NASA even if I wanted to, which who leaves NASA, right? It's a great gig. So well, you I, did eventually. I did eventually. <laughs> but at the time, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to retire here. So it was yeah. a good deal from my perspective. I was single at the time. I didn't have a family. So I just went back to Tallahassee. Did my did all my coursework, did my pre-lit prom, qualifying exams, et cetera. Started a, a research dissertation uh, topic and then came back to Goddard, res resumed my day job and sort of finished the dissertation in my spare time. So I finished what was that. It, was your thesis about trim or what was your No, my thesis about? was actually, uh, my, my dissertation work was looking at uh, the rainfall efficiency and morphology and sort of uh, convergent zone initiated convection. So we used a model predecessor to what's now called the WARF model called ARPS. It was a model out of the University yep. of Oklahoma. 
Yeah. And so we're looking at sort of the evolution of rainfall and these sort of sea breeze interacting or sea breeze outflow interacting systems in the Florida Panhandle. I guess the, the most important paper that I published from that dissertation is published in Monthly Weather Review uh, several years ago. And it, and it was very informative because we found that these the precipitation efficiency and these sort of sea breeze convection type storms or these sort of sort of surface level generated convection is coupled to the vertical moisture flux, but also some things happening in the middle level of the atmosphere in Florida. We always knew that moist middle level in Florida seemed to be associated with more efficient rain producers in that state for whatever reason. So I've looked at how, how people have cited that paper over the years. And it's a lot of people doing parameterization work in the models yeah. have used some of our work in that regard. I'm embarrassed to say that I have not read it. And now I want to go back and read it because <laughs> what you mentioned, when did you publish this? Uh, I think the actual paper is uh, Shepard uh, et al. 2001. It was a paper with myself, okay. my Peter Ray and Brad Ferrier, who developed uh, one of the physics parameterizations that's used in WARF. He was a colleague of mine at Goddard. He was actually on my committee, and I wasn't really a modeler, so I put a modeler on my committee to help me out there. So, so yeah. yes, I, yeah, so it's a, I mean, yeah, it's a really neat work. It's not really anything close to things I've done in my career. but No, but what I wanted to say is that, I mean, what it's about and your conclusions is something, you know, the role of mid-level moisture in regulating tropical convection is something that, I mean, you know, I think it's been kind of known about for a long time, yeah. but in the last, like, 10 years, 15 years, it's really become like a mainstream thing that has had a ton of work on it. Yep. And it's really been established. And so you were actually ahead, a bit ahead of that curve. Um, so, all right. So you do that. You go back. You owe NASA six years. I guess you stayed probably longer than oh, that I if did, I'm yeah. doing the math right. I did. And you ended up uh, as project scientist at GPM. But you were involved in TRIM, as you said, well before that. And I think... I mean, although we only really got to know each other later, I think that that's where you and I first encountered each other because I was funded by Trim for a while. I, no, I, that's where I meetings. first met you. Exactly. I think it was at a, at a Trim science team meeting. Yeah, of some time. we were both a little bit younger. Yes. Um, but um, <laughs> but so so you were in obviously in in D.C. or in Maryland for. I was in Maryland time. for 12 years. I mean, I, you know, I, um, I met my wife, by the way, when I went back to do my PhD, she was working on her master's oh, at Florida okay. State in urban and regional planning. So, you oh, know, okay. along the way, going back to do that, it's just one of these sort of things that happened in life you didn't expect, but I, that's where I met my wife. And so we dated for a while. I went back to Maryland to resume my job at NASA. She got a job near Tampa, Florida as an as a planner. So we okay. were, did a long distance relationship for a while before we got married in 98. And then she moved on up to to the D.C. area where she actually got a job with a consulting firm doing work with HUD. But yeah, you know, eventually I kind of cut my teeth uh, on some research in urban climate using trim data to look at urban rainfall. And so, you know, I did some really interesting work on how, you know, building on some sort of hypotheses that cities could somehow impact rainfall and convection. Yeah. And, and so I had a couple of papers that were successful. I got nominated and got a, a PKS award, which is a presidential early career yeah. award from the White House, from the Bush. At White yeah, House that's a huge deal to get it's one a, of those. I guess so. And so in 2004, received that at the White House. And so was starting to sort of make my own path as a scientist, writing your own proposals and doing those types yeah. of things. Then one of my former PhD committee members, actually, a guy named Eric Smith, you may know him or may be familiar yeah. with him. A little bit. He yeah. was asked From to trim, come yeah. and be the join NASA's the project scientist for GPM, and so then he asked me to be his deputy project scientist. So that's how I that see. came about. So yeah, I was at NASA from 1993 to 2005 with a couple of years back at Tallahassee, 
and then left in 2005 to go to UGA. So since you brought it up, um, you know, I, I do know not as deeply as I'd like to, but I am well aware of your work on urban, um, the urban effect on, mm-hmm. on weather and climate and how having a city there, you know, the different land surface, the buildings, all that changes mm-hmm. uh, weather patterns and, and causes thunderstorms to be in places where maybe they wouldn't be otherwise. Sure. You've been working on that for a long time, sure. as you mentioned, they're really well known for it. It's a topic that's, that's used to be kind of a, you know, a, a small side topic. And I feel like it's now a much bigger deal. Everybody, of course, everybody knows the urban heat island effect for climate change, but you're doing something a little more, um, a little more than that. I was going to ask like how you got into that. And you're saying your wife is an urban planner suddenly made me ask if maybe that had anything to do it with had, it. No, no really, that's just it, it really, it really <laughs> honestly had nothing to do with it. I, I had just been in a, a conference, AMS conference, and I saw some sort of work that was referencing the old Metromex. And I saw this paper by a guy named Lowry in 1998 that basically was very critical of a lot of the early studies on urban rainfall and hydrometeorological processes because it said, you know, you know, people were just focused on one city. Most of the work in Shagnon and others was on St. Louis. Um, mm. And they didn't really replicate. And basically this Lowry paper laid out five steps that really would make those studies more robust. So I looked at that and said, oh, we have a satellite up that can measure rainfall in many different places at one time. And so, oh, right, right. And so it allowed me to sort of to replicate these sort of Metromex type experiments in many different places at once, which kind of mitigated this criticism of the previous studies, which is they do these really robust field campaigns, but just for one city. And so, you know, how, how transferable. Oh. So that's that's how why I had the idea of just, t- you know, taking the trim data set. It's not, it wasn't optimal by any means, you know, from a resolution standpoint and so forth, but it was something. And so, you know, we built on that work as we started doing more of it and started actually seeing some really interesting things in terms of, you know, this urban effect on not only initiation of convection, but also enhancement of rainfall at rainstorms and so forth. But then over the years, it's expanded into looking at land surface uh, hydrology and flooding processes and so forth. So well, now we, we just got a big NASA IDS grant, uh, interdisciplinary grant uh, from the latest round of the IDS program at NASA, nearly $2 million study. I'm the lead, but it's involving five universities. And we're really taking this to the next level, working with NASA Goddard to try to sort of represent some of these processes in you know, weather and climate models and some, and some other types of things. So from that little idea about using trim to just look at rainfall anomalies around multiple cities, now it's become quite a robust effort. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the thing that strikes me about that story is that the key insight in a way was to recognize the strengths of the data set. I mean, in a sense that, you know, because trim is, in a way, it's, it, there's a lot of things it's not good for, as you sort of alluded to, because it doesn't have good time continuity. I mean, it, it only comes back to every spot, sure. you know, maybe once a day if you're lucky and it's, and so you can't like track a storm over time, Absolutely. for example. But you see a huge wide range of places that if you sort of know how to do the statistics, you can you can you can get a lot of, of information about it. Um, when you're trying to parse out some kind of quote unquote urban rainfall signal, yeah, you don't really need to track individual storms as much as sort of be able to parse out the sort of a climatological signal, if you will. And most of the work has been done in the warm season. But one of the things in our in more, some of our more recent work with one of my former students who's now a professor at University of Texas, is we've we were published some of the first work we just published this recently in the Journal of Hydrometeorology. We had a big flood, 500-year flood, caused by a cutoff low, which is these upper-level lows that kind of sit in the same place for days. 
But one of the things we hypothesized in a paper I published in BAMS back in 2011 is that though there were large scale synoptic meteorological forces causing that event, there were some distinct sort of hot spots and where the flooding happened that we thought would cause an urban enhancement. And so I had a student mm-hmm. recently as a part of his dissertation to do some wharf modeling work, and we confirmed my, that hypothesis. And so really? we, we're some of the first that have published sort of moving beyond just initiation, but that there may be urban enhancement of a larger scale forced event. I mean, I guess this is the conventional wisdom that you're, that you're overturning, but I, I would have thought that generally in winter systems, the overall you know, thermal boundary condition wouldn't matter as much. No, this they, was not really a winter system. Oh, I no, this was this. Okay. No, no, no. I said it was just a cutoff low that caused okay. significant flooding uh, here in the, in Georgia. But interestingly enough, uh, one of my other PhD students has found some really interesting sort of urban winter precipitation impacts. We're looking at the DC to New York corridor, the um, I ninety five corridor. Um, uh, he's done some work that shows that in the vicinity of some of the big large cities, DC, Philly, and Baltimore, and so forth, New York. Um, the impact of the urban heat island affects how often you get uh, freezing rain versus mixed rain, mixed precipitation versus snow. Because of course, for freezing rain, that's rain that falls to the ground and then freezes when the temperatures are below freezing. But what we found is because of the urban heat island anomaly, oftentimes in the cities, they don't get as much of the freezing rain events as the suburbs do because of that urban heat island keeping the temperatures above 32. So we've kind of expanded into the sort of winter regime too. But is that is that directly because the surface is just warmer, so it doesn't freeze when it hits, or is it actually the surface actually affecting deeper into the atmosphere? No, it's just the fact, literally, a fact of the surface warming. Because again, oh, okay. as we, if you think about precipitation processes for the listeners, you know, ultimately, particularly here in the mid latitudes, unless we're somewhere in the tropics dealing with warm rain processes where it's just all all water, most rainfall falls starts out as snow, no matter where you are. I mean, you got the ice crystals, the Bergeron process, where you get ice crystals growing at the expense of available water in a cloud uh, due to these vapor pressure differences. The ice crystals grow and then they fall out. And if the temperature is below 32 all the way down, of course, it snows. But somewhere along the way, if the temperature is above 32, it falls out and it's rain. But there can be situations where you have an intervening layer in there that's warm and you get sleep. But the, the situation that you need in terms of temperature profiles for freezing rain is that you have a very warm column so that it's falling as rain, but then you have a shallow layer of below freezing temperatures, and that's how we get freezing rain. And we deal with that a lot here in the South, not so much up where you are, but we have this problem with uh, freezing rain or what we call black ice down here. And so it's all dependent upon what the surface temperature is. And so what we found is that the urban heat island can keep certain temperatures above 32, whereas let's give you an example. In D.C., the temperature may be 34 because of the urban heat island, but out yeah, in yeah. Bowie, Maryland, it's 32 because you don't have as yeah. much of an urban heat island, so you're getting more freezing rain there. Yeah, it makes sense. So um, we could spend this a long time on this, but <laughs> uh, but just to get back to your um, trajectory. So, so what? how did you end up going back to academia? Well, it's interesting because I was quite prosperous in my career at, at NASA doing very well, actually. I had actually even spent a, a year or so down at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Gossam Azra, who was the head of Earth Sciences at, at NASA, Earth, had invited me down to come help him down in that area. And so I was doing quite well, wasn't looking to leave. And so ended yeah. up running into a colleague, Tom Mote, at the AGU in San Francisco. He's a climatologist at University of Georgia. He does work on Greenland. He's done a lot of the very important recent work on Greenland melt 
actually mm -hmm. that he uses passive uh, microwave satellite information, which is just a, a way of using satellites, uh, using the signals in the microwave and so forth. But, um, you know, there was a climatologist retiring from the Department of Geography at UGA. And he said, you know, we have this atmospheric sciences program. It kind of lives in geography, but it's just a few of us right now. And I, I know there's going to be an opening at some point. I know you're from Georgia. You're interested. And I said, well, you know, I'm doing pretty well at NASA. I'm quite happy, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but I thought about it because my wife and I are both from Atlanta. And we yeah. are from the area. Uh, it was just a kind of an interesting point in our both of our lives and, and can't hurt to go down and give a seminar, which is, you know, it wasn't in one of these situations where I was going there saying, I got to have this job. I was just, OK, I'll just feel it out. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah, one thing kind of led to another. You know, both of our parents are here. I mean, we had already had our daughter at that point. She was about two. You know, it's like, oh, it would be kind of neat to be closer to the grandparents and those types of things. Yeah, and yeah. then I recognized that UGA, you know. A lot of people, when I first went back to Georgia, they were like, oh, you're going to Georgia Tech, right? Because they had a much better known program yeah, yeah. at the time. That that has shifted now because our, our program actually is fairly well known. You know, we've got people like myself, John Knox and others here. So it, we, yeah. we've really grown our program. And I think now people say, oh, you're at Georgia, not Georgia Tech. Because we've had, their program's actually sort of contracted as ours has grown. Uh -huh. uh, so it, it just was kind of a fortuitous opportunity. And so you know, over time, I became the director of our atmospheric sciences program, have grown the program. It's a full degree. It was kind of a 30 hour certificate at the time that I got here. Uh, now it's a full degree program. We have graduate. So it's program. a separate program within the department. It is. Of, My tenure at home department is ge geography department. But right, I'm not, okay. I don't have any degrees in geography, obviously. But yeah. uh, the atmospheric sciences program actually lives across several units, geography, engineering. Several of our faculty are in engineering. Some are in geography. Some are in other departments. And so our program meets AMS standards in that it's calculus and physics based, dynamics one and two, yeah. thermodynamics, all, all the things that you'd get at Florida State, Penn State or Oklahoma. So we've got a really good track record now. Our graduates are out there in every corner of the, the community from the weather service to top graduate programs to on TV you know, uh, and so forth. So we're, we're really happy with what we've been able to do with the program. And I've been there now 15 years in, in the program. So. Okay, yeah, I knew it'd been a while, but I didn't know the number. So, so, and you, of course, you have a PhD program there too. I know you have a bunch of graduates. So we do, but it's interesting. Our PhD and master's program are in the geography department, but all of my students, if you look at their dissertations and master's theses, they look like meteorology or atmospheric sciences dissertations. So, for example, I, I've got a student right now. My, just my my current student is working on a, a concept that evolved out of our program called the Brown Ocean concept which is this idea that some storms, when they move over land, hurricanes or tropical oh, systems yeah. can actually, you know, maintain their intensity or maybe strengthen some. So we've been looking at that. Uh, I've got a student looking at that, right? We've got funding from the NASA MAP program, which is the modeling and analysis program. Mm -hmm. And so we've got a, a student doing that. Uh, I had a, I had, I just had a PhD student of mine finish up. Um, she, she did some work using GPM to look at uh, precipitation in arid regions of the Four Corners part of the United States and looking at the implications for water resources for the Navajo community. So oh. one of the things that attracted me to the program at Georgia, frankly, because I had a couple of offers actually to go to more traditional meteorology programs like Michigan or others. I bet you did. Is that, you know, I, a lot of my work really always has been at the intersection of sort of what's going on in society. So I mean, yeah. I, though I have very sort of card carrying theoretical research projects, um, a lot of my interest really was more at the intersection of things that really were geographical in nature or involve human society. 
So yeah. I, I think it was actually ultimately a really good fit because I, I could scratch my atmospheric sciences meteorology itch with the atmospheric sciences program, but then the geography department gave me a broader cover to do this much broader set of thinking. Yeah, and I think there again, you're kind of ahead of the game because, I mean, the more real uh, global warming gets, you know, and the more we all recognize that, you know, we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but we also have to do adaptation, right? The adaptation's all local. Um, you know, it's not unlike CO2 is the same coming from everywhere, but adaptation depends on the place you're in and how the, the weather and the climate affect everything else that's going on in that place. I think there there is and there's going to be even more an increasing trend of the kind of things you're you're doing at that at that interface. You know, I always tell my students, like, you know, I, there's usually a so what somewhere that guides my research. I mean, I, I can do theoretical, highly theoretical research or whatnot, but I, I'm I, especially at this point in my career, I'm really more interested in the so what uh, aspects of it. So, I, for example, I'm involved in a big project here funded by the Ray C. Anderson Foundation called Drawdown Georgia, and it's building on the larger Drawdown bestseller, New York Times bestseller from Paul Hawkins and John Foley's leading it now, yeah, uh, yeah. where we're looking at subset of solutions that are relevant to Georgia and how to um, reduce Georgia's carbon footprint by the year 2030. And so, I mean, that's not even in my wheelhouse at all, but it was of interest to me. And it's a joint effort involving Georgia Tech, Georgia and Emory University. So, you know, as you know, Adam, you, you know, one of the beauties of academia is that you, it gives you some flexibility to spread your wings in some different areas if you're interested. You're, whereas NASA, which I loved, by the way, is a more mission focused agency. Yeah, so yeah. you do have some fle uh, flexibility in a place like NASA, but it's still at the end of the day, very mission focused. Whereas at the university, if, as long as I can find the funding, I can pretty much do whatever I want. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, it's true. Academia, you have a lot of flexibility. If you can find the funding and you can fulfill your basic duties of your job, you can pretty much do whatever you want. But I can't really think of anybody who takes advantage of that to a greater degree than you. <laughs> I mean, right. we share an interest in public communication, but you probably do about 10 times more of it than I do. <laughs> right. So I'm just kind of curious to hear how did that start? Absolutely. And, and what is your take on like, do you have advice? I mean, we could list all the things you're doing. My God, it would make my head explode. You <laughs> talked in the beginning about, about how you always had to have a lot of things going on. I mean, you, know, yeah. you certainly haven't, haven't relaxed on that. But I'm interested both in how you started it and all the different things you did, which, I mean, you can talk about whichever ones you want to, whether it's your writing or the TV show or the, the podcast, any of that stuff. But also any thoughts you have or even advice for every, the rest of us on sort of how you think about how that stuff integrates with the rest of an academic career. Yes. I mean, my, my sense is that the, the institutions, deans and department chairs and so on love it as long as it doesn't come at the cost of anything else you're doing as Ooh. long as you're successful in everything else. Yeah. And, but, I, and I, and I have been, and I think that's the, no, chief. I know you have been, yeah. but, but I'm thinking of young people, you know, there, there are a lot of young people for whom, they're kind of just getting started, but yeah. they but they would like to be part of a broader conversation, yes. and it's sort of a riskier thing for them. So one of the things I wanted to ask is your sort of advice for people. In that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because you're spot on because you and I both know that when when a young assistant professor comes up with tenure, you know, it's at the end of the day you're really looking at how many papers they published, how much grant money they brought in, and uh, you know what's their influences in the in the community based on those letters of, uh, that they're getting. You know, it's interesting because it, because that is the key, because even in my department, uh, I'm probably still at or near the top every year in the number of peer reviewed publications and also the number of extramural grant funding. Right. And so that that sets the foundation so that 
it's pretty much they leave me alone because I'm, you know, I'm answering the mail. But yeah, yeah for, but, but you got to find time for it. I mean, well, how do you, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's a, because honestly, I'm not that person that has ever really been sort of in my lab or office till 12 midnight. I mean, I have a very clear balance and kind of um, draw the line between my you know, office time and my family time. It's just about efficiency. I tell young uh, colleagues and mentees all the time. I, I I know my I know my work points. I know at what point in the day I write best. I know at what point of the day I think best. And so, for example, some of my most productive writing comes between about five thirty a.m. and and nine a.m. I don't write any other time of the day. I don't have this sort of list of things in a day I'm going to get done, but I have this sort of time periods within the day where I know those are the types of things I'm going to work on in that window of time versus that window of time. And that has really helped me over the years, rather than me sort of figuring different things out each day. But for younger people, I, you know, like I said, I've always, I always took public speaking classes in in school and in writing classes. And I was, like I said, president of this organization or that. So I was always kind of used to or accustomed to being in in public engagement. But when Mm. I was at NASA, I think someone figured out somewhere along the way that I could talk about science in a way that people understood. So they started putting me in front of cameras for doing interviews on wildfires and El Nino and all kinds of things that weren't necessarily in my expertise. And so I think, you know, I took media training. I I advise any young scientist to figure out some way to take a media training. Read Dave Schultz's book, Eloquent Science. I think it's a really good starter. Um, I have have a Forbes article I've written out there called Nine Tips for Communicating Science for Non-Scientists. I encourage people to kind of Google that and take a look at it. But I think just NASA really helped me cut my teeth. But I will say this. One of my mentors is Dr. Warren Washington, who's a very well-known climate oh, scientist, yeah. uh, won the Presidential Medal of Science. And he cautioned me very early on. He said, you know, look, you're very articulate. You know how to handle yourself. Don't allow yourself to get typecast as just an outreach guy. Yeah, he said, yeah. establish your science credentials first. And yeah. once you firmly do that, then you can do whatever you want. And I took that advice to heart. You know, I became a fellow of the AMS. I got the PCASE Award. I've recently gotten the yeah, AMS yeah. Landsberg Award. So I know my science cred is there. And so yeah. it frees me up. But a younger scientist, a, a junior faculty or a junior scientist at a Goddard or so forth, I mean, increasingly they do have to worry about answering the mail first. I've actually been working or pushing really hard to try to, uh, you know, advocate that, you know, engagement and service becomes more of a part of that sort of calculus for things like promotions and tenure, because I don't view it as something extra when I do these things. I I view it, as you said, as a synthesis of a broader mission that we have. But I think that's where the tension is, is that I think, I I mean, I I agree with you, but I think the institutions do view it as extra. I mean, they love it. But it's they extra. Do. But when did it first start happening? The NASA start. You said when NASA started. I, I, I think that you putting know, you in front I of think cameras. That NASA, you know, really the, that's where it really took off. You know, all the other things just kind of came from other things. So, for example, after my year as president of the AMS, um, the Weather Channel contacted me and said, "Look, you know, we know you're here in the Atlanta area. We have this idea, crazy idea, the humorous for a second, to do a Meet the Press or Face the Nation type talk show about weather, and we think you'd be perfect to host it." So that's right. how Weather Geeks came about. So I, yeah, yeah. I mean, you had already been doing a lot of things by that point, and you were already well, very well known. I mean, I can't think of another academic scientist who's done a TV show. No, like I think there have been a couple. Few. There have been a couple. Okay, yeah, I can think of one or two. Yeah. But I mean, well, I guess what I'm saying is, I'm not trying to say that that wasn't a huge deal. But I'm saying that wasn't the beginning for you. I mean, oh, you oh, already, oh, absolutely, absolutely yeah. not. I, yeah, a lot yeah. of it came probably after the AMS because, again. Uh, one of the things that I would do before each episode of Weather Geeks is write a blog about the episode. And so uh, an editor yeah. at Forbes was reading those and contacted me. He said, I love the way you write. 
would you write for Forbes because we're spinning up a new Forbes science? And that's yeah. kind of how that came about. So, yeah, there, I was definitely doing a lot of things prior to that. I'd done a couple of TEDx talks and so forth. But, you know, my my formula, Adam, is that I, I, I am selective, believe it or not, about the things that I do. <laughs> it has to meet sort of objectives that I already have in place. I, I, for all the things yeah. I do, you'd be surprised. You might not be surprised how many things I actually turned down. Uh, I am not surprised. Yeah. I can only imagine, but I, I am sure it is large. Because yeah, it's kind of happening. Yeah. I mean, because I have this sort of strategic goals and things that I want to accomplish as a scientist. And that's why I say, you know, you know, universities actually are very sort of almost prehistoric in some way in the way they think about some of these things, because they, I think in many cases they do think of it as an extra. But it's baffling to me because I really feel like my public engagement and my activity on Twitter and various other things have enhanced the uh, the scholarly things that they I'm expected to do. For oh, yeah. example, I, I mean, in yeah. terms of how, getting grants, finding new partners, you you and I testified together. Yeah, 2009 before the House Science Committee. 19, that my yeah. name came up on that because the, the 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 staffer that reached out to me said, said I follow you on Twitter and I love the way you explain things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so those things create these other things that I think University of Georgia, I suspect, loves that I host Weather Geeks. Or oh, loves yeah, of course. That I'm of course. Yeah. Before. So, of you know, course. and it's weird because they love it. But yet in some ways, not I'm not saying UGA, but universities in some ways have a built in barrier to promote their faculty doing these types of things. Yet when they do it successfully, it can be quite good for the university. Right. I think that's the tension is that if we want to increase as academic institutions, you know, our our footprint on the world and not be just in the ivory tower, we have to find a way to encourage people a little more. I mean, there's always going to be people like you that can do it because, you know, nothing was going to stop you anyway. But but that's not everybody, you know. Oh, sure. and, and, and the thing that interests me about it, I mean, just going back to the beginning when you said NASA put you in front of cameras and they saw that you could talk about wildfires and El Nino and all those other things that you weren't working on. I don't know if it was just natural confidence that you had or if it was an insight, but either way, I think what you kind of grasped at the beginning is what it comes hard to a lot of us is that getting a PhD and going through the rigmarole that we go through, we work so hard to learn how to communicate to our peers and to be the number one expert in topic X, Y, and Z. And then the reporters ask you to talk about something else and you haven't written a paper about it. <laughs> That's right. And most people have the tendency to back off at yes. that point because they, first of all, they think they might get something wrong. Sure. Their colleagues might think less of them. Second of all, they just feel embarrassed because they're not talking about their own work. It's like they're taking credit for something they didn't do, none of which actually matters in the situation you're in, but because we've gone through this other training and somehow that didn't get to you. You know, and Kim Cobb and I, I know you know Kim Cobb, she, she and I hosted a, a science communications workshop for AAAS in Atlanta a few years ago. And there was one graphic we showed that showed how the way we learn as PhD and master students is completely inverted from how we should be communicating to the public. Because, you know, we if you think about a triangle, the base of the triangle is all this information that we learn and then we distill it. And then at the end, we give the final results at the end, whether it's in a science talk or a science paper or a dissertation. Whereas in public engagement, you've got to give the, the, the point of what you found right up front, not worry about all the background. So it's part of how we're trained. You know, there are a couple of things, Adam, that I think inoculated me to, to what you're saying. One is, I think some of it is, <laughs> I'm, this is going to sound weird, but growing up as an only child. 
And the, the reason oh. I say that is I never really had this need to please others or need, need their <laughs> respect. And so I never really cared what my, my <laughs> peers or colleagues said about, oh, he's out there doing that stuff or whatever. I just kind of do my thing and I've always done my thing without really worrying about whether others thought about it. You know, because there, there was this sort of notion that scientists that do the outside work and just didn't stick to the ivory tower or popularized. Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah, have dealt with some of this. Exactly. I never, yeah. I never worried about that kind of stuff. So I guess it just didn't bother me. Uh, but then I think the other thing is actually something that a TV producer, a NASA television producer said to me that always stuck with me. His name is Wade Sizzler. And I was like, Wade, you know, I don't, I, I don't really know anything about tsunamis. I was, I was doing a media hit for NASA. It was like a big media hit. And he said, you know, relative to everyone in the audience that's going to be looking at you on the Today Show, you know far more than they know about Right, science. exactly. So it's a relative knowledge scale. So, right. yeah, though I don't know as much as a physical oceanographer about tsunamis, I know more than John yep. or Jane Doe sitting there watching CNN about it. And so once yep. I kind of was comfortable with that, I was really able to move forward. Yeah, no, that's such an important insight. I mean, because I've had brief periods of doing it a lot and longer periods of doing it a little, I mean, much less than you do it. But this helped me early on when I grasped this. There's been times when I've tried to convince some other colleagues to do a little more of it, talking to reporters or whatever it might be. And I've had people say, well, I'm going to be taken out of context. I'm not the top expert or they're going to get it wrong. And I've said exactly what you said, well, in slightly different words, is basically don't ask whether this newspaper story that you're being quoted in is going to be as good as one of your scientific papers. Right. Ask, is it going to be better than if you didn't talk to the reporter? Right. You know, you just have to bring the level. And if you if it's if you made it a little better, you that's success. You know, that's all you can and, you and, can do. And I think it's hard for people to swallow that because we're so trained not to yeah. think that way. That that attitude will not cut it. You know, in a scientific conference, but in the in the in the you know in the mainstream conversation, that's I think that's the right way. To look well, at and it. I think the other part of that, Adam, is if if you or I don't talk to that reporter, there's a chance that they'll go and talk to someone that gets it completely wrong and also has an agenda <laughs> right. about it. Right. Because that as I too. said, as I said in Nature that somewhere too. in an article, if we're not there filling the gaps, there's someone willing to rush in and fill the void for us. Well, especially in the climate, in, in the climate, and you and yeah. I are orbit in the climate world. You know, yeah, Adam, yeah. You know, Adam and I for the, the listeners, I'm. You know, we mentioned that we kind of cross paths in, in the trim world and NASA's science team world, but we were also co-authors on a recent National Academy paper that was sort yeah. of dealing in attribution of weather, extreme weather and climate change, too. So we know the world of climate and climate discussions and climate change. So, yeah. OK, so there's one more topic I want to get to uh, if I can if I can have your forbearance on it. So you mentioned the beginning, you know, whether you didn't know if it's good or bad that you were the first African-American valedictorian and all that. And, um, you know, as we know, you know, last person I need to tell is you, our field has a serious whiteness problem that I think, you know, everybody's known for a long time and people have tried to do things about it. But by any reasonable account, by and large, we have not been successful. And now, you know, with the tremendous um, change in the public conversation due to the Black Lives Matter movement, you're seeing uh, another level of interest, at least, you know, nominally from our institutions, whether it be uh, academic institutions or professional societies, the American Meteorological Society, which you were the president of some years ago. Um, and I, I'm trying to formulate a good question, at it, but I just want your reaction to it. Are things changing? Are they going to change? You know, why haven't they changed so far? How, what's your take on it from your position? And, and I want to I preface this by saying that 
in your public persona, which we've been talking about now, where you, you write and speak and on a lot, a lot of issues in weather and climate, and this isn't one that dominates your output, and that, which is by no means a, you know, a criticism in any way. I don't, but, but I know it's something that you take seriously in your work as a, as a professor and in other contexts, and I know you've got thoughts about it. So I just, you know, I, I, any opinion you have about what's happening now, what does it mean? Is it real? You know, where's it going? Oh, well, yeah, I've got plenty of thoughts about it. In fact, over the quarantine, I wrote a book called uh, The Race Awakening of 2020, a six step guide to moving forward. So I would invite anybody to take a look at it. It's out there. It's out now. It's on Amazon. Sure. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I'm sorry. I missed that. Yes. uh, So. And Adam, I wrote it after the George Floyd incident. I was I woke up one weekend just so bothered by what was going on with racial justice issues that I wrote that book. And the reason I wrote it is because I wanted I was having a lot of white colleagues and friends and associates emailing, texting, like, what can we do? We're so sorry we that this is happening. You know, it's things that we've known were going on for some time, but people yeah. I think now in this era with the cameras and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. It's right in front of people. They can't deny it. So I wrote that book as a uh, as a as a as a guide. Literally, it's a seventy page handbook. It's not even a long read, and I lay out what I think are the six steps to really help us move forward on racial issues. And so I yeah, so I, I definitely had some thoughts on it. But kind of getting back to sort of what you started the conversation with, we've been at trying to crack this nut for a while in terms of diversity and inclusion in science. Yeah. Uh, because it's not just meteorology and atmospheric sciences across the board. Uh, the numbers in terms of black and people of color is very low. Uh, I've written on this in the past in Forbes. It has a lot to do with mentorship or lack thereof, seeing examples of people at, at a very young age that look like them. So, for example, my mentor early on as a child was George Washington Carver. I never met him or knew him. He was a peanut scientist at Tuskegee Institute at that time. But I just read a ton of books about him because there weren't a lot of atmospheric scientists or entomologists that I knew that looked like me. And right. so that leads to issues and challenges in terms of retention and, and recruitment of people into the field. I'll give you an example. Our atmospheric sciences program now, John Knox and I are probably going to write a BAMS article about this, is probably overrepresented, relatively speaking. If you look, we've got 60 atmospheric sciences majors right now. Um, 67% are women. Uh, I think 8 to 12% are African-American or, or Black and then mm-hmm. several uh, Latinx or Hispanic. That's an overrepresentation if you look at the numbers. The AMS own, own statistics show that only 2% of our field is African American. Right. So part of that is representation. These students see someone there in a leadership position or role that looks like them. Right. They have someone that they can talk to. Some of it is the fact that it's just geographic. We're located in the South where there's a larger African American population, say, than. Madison, Wisconsin, uh, so uh, where there's a major meteorology program as well. But I guess my point is we think about these things. We think carefully about how to make our program as representative as possible. Now, not that the AMS or the National Science Foundation or others have not. Uh, there's been a lot of programs and a lot of funding and fellowships and yeah. scholarships thrown at this problem, yet the pipeline still hasn't budged that much if you're in reality. That's right. That's right. So it's a complicated problem, but I think it, at the heart of it, it begins with um, sort of representation. Because even when I step into a NASA as a young scientist, and I'm the only African-American for miles in the entire building, you know, I have the kind of personality that doesn't bother me. That's, I, I, I'll thrive no matter what. But there yep. are some people that really need to see that or need to have, feel like there's someone that they can relate to or on a cultural level. And 
and so forth. Right. But I mean, so, I mean, representation clearly is, if not the problem, it's at least, you know, the, you know, the single biggest part of the problem. I mean, if, you know, the, the other part of the problem, of course, is once we have people who are historically underrepresented in the field, you know, are we treating them right so that they don't leave, right. you know, so that they don't feel they're in a hostile environment, but, but they have to be there first. And we haven't been doing very well on that, as, as you said. But the representation problem is kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? You know, it's like if the people aren't there at the senior level, then the younger people don't see them there. But they have every senior person starts as a younger person. So, so in other words, whatever we've been doing on that front has not, by and large, been working. Well, I, I think I know the problem, and I've I've articulated this many times to people, including the folks at NCAR who run the SOARS program, at AMS, and so forth. We're scientists, so learn from the data. The yeah. AMS surveys its membership every year. And what the AMS has overwhelmingly found in its survey of members, and I know there are exceptions, uh, but most people within our field got engaged in like somewhere between fourth and seventh grade. I was one of them. But here's the problem. A lot of our programs from like NSF programs, AMS programs are targeted at undergraduates, grad students, perhaps high school. It may be too late. I think we need to target fourth through seventh grade. Yeah, but see, the thing about that is, I mean, I think a lot of us have come to that conclusion, certainly in the discussions in my institution, that's that's been voiced. But the, the thing that makes it difficult is that, I mean, generally speaking, education in our field, I mean, it's a rare person who who starts, you know, in sixth grade and just continues. I mean, it's it, 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 education in our field generally starts at a pretty high level because most people get into the field after having studied physics or chemistry oh, sure, or engineering sure. or something else. So it's sort of natural that the institutions that are trying to address it are universities, you know, colleges, institutes of higher education, professional societies. And so if we say that the problem begins at a younger age, you know, that may be completely true, but in a way it it can become a sort of a way of us passing the buck of us saying, well, you know, we, therefore it's not our bailiwick. I mean, or we have to radically change how we operate. We have to start educating people much younger than we thought of as our job. It's that, what you just said. Plus it's also those same institutions, universities, NSF, NASA, AMS, but just targeting your programming and your, the way you, you, do some of these sort of K through 12 efforts at those levels. I mean, I, th- I think the universities yeah. still stay engaged. There's some of it also, I think is just, is cultural. I'll, I'll give you an example. As a smart black kid in Canton, Georgia, all my family and friends said, oh, you're going to go be a lawyer or a doctor, right? Like a medical doctor. There's yeah. this sort of cultural perception that the best kids go off in the law or medicine or perhaps business. They don't see atmospheric sciences or ecology or oceanography as viable career. There are real cultural challenges with things like that within community and some of the communities of color and marginalized communities as well. So I, I, I fundamentally think there needs to be a rethinking of how we address some of these issues rather than just throwing summer programs, internships and, and scholarships at, at, yeah. at undergraduate students. Yeah, no, I'm not saying those are bad, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, some of them do seem to be successful. Yeah. I mean, maybe many aren't. But, I mean, I just talked um, recently to Deanna Hentz about this. She just Yeah, I know, know Deanna her. very she, well. She just got a, you know, a career grant to sort of try to replicate the NCAR SOARS program at the, at the University of Illinois. And, and so we were talking about SOARS. And that, and that does seem to be one of the things that has worked you in know, the sense that you look around the field and you see people that have come out of it. And they're doing well. They're in the field. They're not leaving. And they say that was part of the what got them in or kept them in. 
So that seems to be somebody got something right there. And I think we have to look at the models where people have been successful and say, how can we broaden those out? You know, how can we keep doing whatever those people are doing? And, and I guess that includes your department, too. Well, but you know, right. you, you know what's really also worked? And unfortunately, I don't know what their status is. I, I would argue that the largest sort of population of African-American PhDs in atmospheric sciences has come from the Howard University uh, atmospheric Sciences Program that Everett Joseph yeah. and Vernon Morris and Greg Jenkins. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can count about 20 PhDs from that program. Well, and that's but, a large fraction of probably how many we yeah, have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're all personal friends of mine. I know I'm personal. Yeah, yeah. Look, I never went to an HBCU. Both my parents did. But I'm saying we know that that program has been successful at the graduate level. We know that yeah. the, the program at Jackson State University, another HBCU, has been pro- uh, prolific at the undergraduate level. Uh, so right. I think I agree with you. I think we need to look at SOARS, but I also think we need to carefully look at, you know, th- those programs as well, because they, they you take away the graduates from those programs. Our numbers go way down in our field. So those programs, you know, are doing a huge service to, to all the rest of us and they deserve all the support we can get. But do you think that any of what they're doing is replicable in a normal you know, uh, in a non HBCU. No, I think university. that's part of the challenge. I, th- I, I think, I think we can get close, particularly if we, you know, some of the things we've explored trying to do is some joint or partnering efforts uh, with some of the HBCUs here in Atlanta, for example, and some three, two programs and some, so I think there's some things that we can do to leverage, but, you know, uh, candidly, there are some students that want that experience at an HBCU or a, or, well, sure. I mean, or, uh, or an if MSI. it works, it works. Yeah. No, I mean, you can't argue with success. And, but, but you got, but, but it's gotta be quality because you're already walking in the door sometimes as a, as a scientist of color where people sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, oh, they got there because of some special advantage or they're not nearly yeah. as good. So you've got to right. always have that in the back of your mind. And so the Howard program is very quality. It's some good fact. I mean, Everett Joseph is now the head of NCAR. He left there. Greg Jenkins is faculty at Penn State. Vernon Morris is good. He's now in Arizona State. The problem is some of their good faculty are now in other places. And I don't know what's going on with that. It's a conversation maybe for a different day. But, um, you know, I think there's some things we can learn and leverage from programs like that, perhaps not completely replicate. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I'd love to talk about this more, but I know you're a busy person with a lot of places to be. Yes. Is there anything I should have brought up that I didn't? Is there anything no, you want really to advertise that we missed you know, no, mentioning? I, you know, I, just follow me on Twitter. I keep it interesting over there. Uh, it's at Dr. Shepard 2013, doctor with a DR. Uh, and, and definitely, if you do want to know more about my thoughts on some of the racial issues in the country right now, definitely check out um, the Race Awakening of 2020, Six Steps Guide to Moving Forward. Uh, I, I really kind of just lay it all out there. And I talk a lot about my career experiences from the lens oh, of yeah. African-American male in science in that book. So yeah. I, I definitely would advertise this on Amazon as an ebook or as so a we'll put paper. the um we'll put the links in the notes, the yeah, show notes. Absolutely. Whenever we post these things, we put a little blog and we'll and we'll put those in there. Yeah, and definitely Ken yeah. Kenyon. I mean, I, I I love this podcast and I'm glad to be a part of it. And Adam was a part of our podcast, Weather Geeks, so we appreciate that. And glad to return the favor. So definitely continue to check out Weather Geeks as well, uh, Weather Channel's Weather Geeks podcast. Yep. It's just what it sounds like. It's great, uh, great bit of science. Yeah, for the weather geeks. I don't know how to it's say literally that's that. what exactly what it is. We geek out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Marshall. I really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Best of luck with everything, and I look, I'll be keeping track of all all your all the things you're doing. No Thank problem. You. Thanks a lot. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. That guy is a force of nature. What an honor to talk to Marshall Shepard. 
just to repeat some of those plugs, you can follow Marshall on Twitter. He's Dr. Shepherd 2013. You can check out his podcast, Weather Geeks, on the Weather Channel. And his recent book is called The Race Awakening of 2020, A Six-Step Guide to Moving Forward. So check out all those things. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Juan Aboitis. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.